Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Perfect Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Eugene Linden, who will discuss issues in his book, The Octopus and the Orangutan. Also joining us is Jimmy Lin, who will give us some useful tips against the MS Blast worm. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grogs. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Uh, very good, actually. Uh, is that right? I'm about to file. You're about to file? Yeah. For uh, for running for governor? Oh, no, not that one. Oh, jeez. Uh, so instead of governor, you're going to be Dr. Frank Ling. You <laughs> know, officially, it doesn't take effect until the end of the year. Oh, uh, that's too... Well, you know, I got a problem when I go like this, doctor. You know. <laughs> I, I have no idea how to fix that. Uh, so you're not running for governor? No. Oh, man. you got to run for governor. What? There's only 200 candidates, right? I know. That's You can take him down, right? <laughs> I, th- I think you could take down Gary Coleman, number one, easily. Supposedly, huh? Right, and you could take down the porn star. What, Larry Flint? Well, yeah, you got Larry Flint, but apparently there's also like a... A porn star? A real por- porn star. A real actual porn actress. Wow. It almost makes it like an authentic election now. <laughs> Except we got Schwarzenegger, which would be something good as well. Yeah. Well, why, don't we, why don't we both run? It could be like a joint governorship. Yeah, the Grox team. The Grox governorship. <laughs> I'm sure all of our listeners out there would vote for for the, the Grox governorship. Mm-hmm. And we could talk about science all the time. Uh, that, that's right. We, we'd be dedicated to bringing California into uh, at least the, the Stone Age. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the Bronze Age may be too much to aim for right now, but the yeah. Stone Age, you know. All right. All right. So uh, here's a question for you. Do you like it slow and foamy or fast and foamy? Any kind of foam, uh, any kind of speed, uh, as long as there's foam. Well, uh, unfortunately, the British like it slow. They like it slow. And I'm talking about Guinness. Oh, Guinness. So actually, a couple of months ago, Daigio, the marketer for uh, the Irish beer Guinness, tried this fast pour technology where they uh, try to reduce the time it takes to pour the Guinness to the glass. Uh, typically, it should take about two minutes. Uh-huh. With this new technology, the fast pour, it was supposed to take about 25 seconds, but the British public didn't accept it at all. I see. So how did this fast pour work? Did it just go quickly and then maybe, what do they do, agitate it to get the foam or something? I Actually, pretty close. They use ultrasound to create ultrasound. that uh, wow. characteristic uh, creamy feel to it. Ooh, I like the creamy feel. Mm. All about the ultrasound, huh? <laughs> maybe, maybe some innovation going on. I, I just don't really want to know, but it's kind of kinky stuff. <laughs> so unfortunately, uh, they had to backtrack on this. And, uh. Uh, they like it slow and steady. Slow and steady. Wow. Well, there's there's quite a bit of a drama to the the whole Guinness pour, you know. Mm-hmm. So if anyone wants more, there was a major article in the National Post on May 27th, or you could look at the summary in the recent issue of Chemical and Engineering News.
All right, going from uh, slow and creamy to uh, West and Nile. West and Nile? West yeah. Nile? West Nile, that's right. The West Nile virus, in fact. Ah. So that's the best transition I could come up with here. <laughs> so, as, as I'm sure you're well aware, the West Nile virus is not a very good thing to be having or ever have. It's like on the order of Ebola, right? It's, it's pretty bad, in fact. And, uh, you know, it's carried by mosquitoes, and it's been quite prevalent, actually, in uh, Northern America recently. Yes, I believe it's spreading a bit. Right, right. I guess there's now a reservoir pool of, of the virus, in oh. fact. So, it's a good thing, though, because uh, vaccines are on their way. Oh, okay. And a recent research team led by virologist Roy Hall and Alexander Kromick of the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia, have come up with a very interesting way of creating a vaccine. Really? How's it different from uh, the standard? Well, it's actually, I guess it actually is something of a standard way. What they've done is they've taken a virus that's very similar to West Nile virus, uh-huh. called the Kunjin virus. Okay. And it's it's very similar to West Nile. They've sort of manipulated a little bit of it, and they just inject it into the body, and it basically uh, gets the immune system to recognize the Kunjin virus. But since Kunjin is so similar to West Nile, right. it can also recognize West Nile as well. So uh, what's the reason for using the analog? Is it safer? Yeah, apparently this Kunjin virus is uh, much less uh, virulent. It causes less effects than West Nile. Uh-huh. But at the same time, it has all the same sort of markers. markers, yeah, the things that are recognized by the immune system. I see. So that's that's the main reason. Wow. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a nice, elegant way of going about it. So do they have some recommendations for the public to get uh, immunizations in the near future? or? Uh, well, this is still, I guess, in clinical trials, and actually there's uh-huh. there's quite a few. Um, there's actually a company named Oravax, uh, led by Thomas Monath. It's a Cambridge, Massachusetts company, uh, where they've also come up with a hybrid vaccine with yellow fever. So I guess it's like a combination West Nile, yellow fever, attenuated virus. Right. There's all these candidates out there right now, but they still have nothing's gained approval for West Nile yet. Okay, and if anyone wants to know more about this? Oh, you can check this out. This is in the recent edition of Science. So, Charles, what do you do to impress girls? Very little, in fact. I think I just kind of uh, walk away and lock myself in my room. Man, you're that shy? <laughs> it does. I guess that doesn't help with impressing the girls. Well, it turns out there's a correlation between criminals and scientists about impressing girls. Oh, is that right? Yes. So a study carried out by Satoshi Kanazawa at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand suggests that scientific geniuses and criminals do their best work before their mid-30s, and he believes it's our deep desire to impress girls. Uh, well, that's, that's just an inborn. <laughs> trait, my friend, every male species. Why Why scientists and criminals in particular? Uh, who knows? There's Unable a f- component to Right. It. We couldn't figure out any other way of impressing girls, so we either had to steal things or uh, mix things. I don't know. Yeah, he's, so he argues that the uh, the same team that discovered the double helix and those who uh, robbed banks are doing it to simply uh, as a display for females. Well, I was using my uh, my amazing peacock feather display, but that rarely works. Got to get a bigger one, you know. <laughs> it's all about size. <laughs> so if anyone wants to know more, you can go to the uh, July 12th issue of New Scientist. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, Eugene Linden will join us to discuss animal intelligence, as portrayed in his book, The Octopus and the Orangutan. New tales of animal intrigue, intelligence, and ingenuity. So stay tuned.
to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, tales of amazing behavior by animals continue to cause wonder and amazement. But do these acts imply something more about animals? Are some animals intelligent? And if they are, what does this say about our own intellectual prowess? And just what does intelligence actually entail? Well, joining us today to discuss these issues of animal intelligence is Eugene Linden. Mr. Linden is an award-winning journalist and author who has penned the new book, The Octopus and the Orangutan, New Tales of Animal Intrigue, Intelligence, and Ingenuity. Mr. Linden, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Delighted to be here. Uh, Well, you've penned a very fascinating book, The Octopus and the Orangutan, and I'm just curious if you could tell us uh, some of the fascinating tales that uh, you've documented in this book. Well, these are stories of animal intelligence. I've written a lot about studies earlier and got frustrated with the debate, which seemed to be going nowhere. And I heard about an orangutan named Fu Manchu, who, uh, this was, I was just over in Africa with Jane Goodall, and a guy who was over there had been a zookeeper, and he was telling me the zoo legend about this orangutan who put a wire between his lip and gum and used it to pick the lock on his cage and escape three times before he was apprehended. And he'd conceal the wire between his lip and gum between escapes. And I thought, gee, this is pretty intelligent behavior. I've been looking into it for a long time. And then I thought, gee, maybe animals do their best thinking when it serves their purposes rather than in a study or something like that. And I began collecting these stories, wrote a book called The Parrot's Lament, which did fairly well. And so then I launched into the octopus and the orangutan where I wanted to sort of broaden the parameters a bit. Again, went back to the same sources and got some amazing stories. A couple of my favorites were orcas down at SeaWorld in in Orlando, Florida. You know, they have a lot of free time, and they invent games to amuse themselves. Well, one of the things that happens down at SeaWorld in late September is seagulls come flying over after they leave the beaches when the tourists go home, and they, they see this inviting body of water down there, and sometimes they land not knowing that there's a bunch of orcas beneath the surface. And every now and then an orca would grab one of these seagulls and uh, they'd let them go usually. But then the keepers noticed that the orcas started holding on to pieces of fish that they'd be given as treats during the day. And when the seagulls flew over, sometimes an orca would expel a piece of fish towards the surface. And then when the seagull dived down to get it, they'd grab the seagull. So in essence, they were doing the mirror image of fishing. And here was an animal underwater fishing for something in the air as opposed to what we do, which is, that seemed pretty clever. Then halfway around the world, in uh, there's a, a couple of uh, orangutan orphanages in Borneo where orangutans are under great pressure in the wild. And one of the orphans at one of these orangutans was a little female named Siti. And she was being rehabilitated to go back into the wild. And uh, after they've been given a little bit of instruction, what they do is they put them in a halfway house where they're supposed to be able to forage by themselves, and the keepers or the assistants will observe them. And one of the people, uh, one of the scientific advisors came out to take a look at how CT was doing, and once they're in this halfway house, you're not supposed to be feeding them. And CD was working on a coconut, and she couldn't open this coconut. And what they usually do is rip the the husk off, and then they poke through the soft eyes to get at the meat and the milk. And she was quite frustrated, and she kept handing this coconut to uh, one of the Indonesian assistants, a fellow named Nayan. And the assistant would look embarrassed and hand it back to her. And then this woman, Anne Rusan, who's a scientist, looked around and realized what was going on because there were a lot of split coconut husks on the ground. And this, of course, was a big no-no, since it's clear that he'd been helping her feed. And But Sidi didn't know this, uh, that there was anything wrong with him splitting them open, so she kept handing it back to him. And finally, she got, and he'd hand the coconut back to her, and she got really frustrated. And so she picked up a stick, and holding it exactly like a machete, held the coconut in one hand, and then smashed the stick down on the coconut, and then handed it back to the Indonesian assistant, as though to say, see, 
Mm -hmm. You understand what I'm trying to say? And I thought this was a very interesting phenomenon because it showed that she realized that he wasn't getting the message. She tried to find a, a mime language in this case that he might understand so she would know what he was saying. It showed that she realized that he was misunderstanding something, which is a huge leap for those who study uh, animal consciousness and animal intelligence. Another example of something similar happened with a scientist named Diana Reese, who early in her career was in France doing studies of a dolphin named Circe. And she would teach this dolphin something. It was operant conditioning. And when Circe did something wrong, she would step back and, assess, in essence, give her a timeout. And uh, she would feed Circe treats, which consisted of fish chopped in thirds, the heads, the middle, and the tails. And Circe didn't like the tails. And every now and then, Diana would slip up and give her a tail. And she began noticing that whenever she gave her a tail, Circe would stop, and then she'd back off, you know, vertical in the water. She'd back up a few places and then stay there for a couple of minutes and then come back. And after this happened a couple of times, Diana realized that Circe was giving her a timeout because Diana had done something wrong. And here again, Circe was extracting a general meaning. Uh, by the way, Diana started doing this on purpose and then actually included this in her dissertation. But it, it showed that Circe understood that she appropriated a message system that was being taught by uh, Diana to the dolphin and then used it for her own purposes and also extracted a general meaning from it since she didn't literally mimic the circumstances in which Diana was using that. So I thought this, too, suggested that Circe had under, some understanding of a common language that they were being taught. So they're all very, very fascinating stories. Um, this is an issue you bring up several times in the book, is that uh, how can we really tell that these uh, behaviors are actually signs of animal intelligence or not just reflexive behaviors? And, and well, so what does it actually uh, say? Which, that is the question. I yeah. mean, it, this is the, the issue that's ossified the study of uh, animal intelligence for over 30 years, is that there's always the possibility in any, in any study, by the way, that this is some sort of simple type of associative learning or reward-driven behavior. Mm -hmm. But in the case of Fu Manchu, of course, rewards were out of the question since the keepers were trying to keep him in the cage. Mm -hmm. um, also, it's kind of hard to imagine, since he didn't have a television set, how he would have learned any of the, the things by accident. When you think of the series of, acts, uh, of actions he had to take in order to pick the lock on his cage, it's sort of hard to imagine that he stumbled on him. And then uh, it turns out, in fact, that he may well have traded with another orangutan to get a hold of the wire to begin with. So to come up with an, a series of simple behaviors that would lead to him getting a hold of a wire, hiding it from his keepers, which showed uh, deception, since he knew his keepers would take it away if they saw it, then using it to trip the lock on the cage to the furnace door, it's conceivable that this is all a series of simple associations, but is that the most likely explanation? This is why I did the book, because in, in science uh, or in, in the study of behavior, there's this notion of Morgan's canon, which is a corollary of uh, Occam's razor. The simplest explanation must obtain unless a more complex explanation is called for. Morgan's canon sort of says that unless there's overwhelming reason to invoke a, a higher mental ability, you have to explain a behavior by a lower mental ability. I'm paraphrasing here. Mm -hmm. And this sort of rules the study of behavior, but there's always possibility of the thousandth monkey writing or the millionth monkey writing Hamlet. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a trap. And then the, the final piece of this, of course, is that it's hard enough to prove lying in a human court, you know, perjury, where you're dealing with humans and the assumption is the other intelli intelligent. In dealing with subjective behaviors in another animal, 
the, the burden of proof is that much more difficult. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an extraordinarily different, difficult problem for the behavioral science to grapple with, and I just got frustrated with this debate, which was like Groundhog's Day, sort of re- returning the same ground every day for years and years and years. And uh, when I heard about these experiments, I thought, well, let's just see what these animals, not experiments, these stories, let's see what these animals do on their own when given a chance. And what they do, uh, it, it, it's kind of hard to write off these stories. Uh, another story involves an, an orca who was trying to, well, what happened was he was in a marine world of the Pacific. This is some years ago. He, his name was Orky. He had a, a mate named Corky, and they had a little baby who wasn't doing well. They had to remove the baby from the tank, and they lowered a stretcher from a boom And while the tank was full, and they put the baby in the tank to give it a feeding and care for it. And when they were turning it to the tank, the boom operator didn't have a clear line of sight of the tank, and so he halted the, the stretcher about three or four feet above the tank, out of reach of the keepers who were in the water treading water. At that point, the baby started throwing up, which was a desperate situation because there was a danger it would aspirate some vomit and get a fatal case of pneumonia. Orky was watching this procedure, and he could see that the trainers couldn't reach the stretcher to, to let it go and release the baby into the tank. Without any call, you know, without any command or anything else, he swam over under one of the trainers, let him get on his head, and then raised him up so he could reach the stretcher. And Orky had never had any training to have a human on his head. So he clearly saw the situation, saw that the people were trying to help his baby, and realized that he could do something to help the people help the baby. It's hard to write that off as a type of instinctive response because it's so complicated and it understands, you know, uh, some perception of the motivations of all the players involved and how he might um, intervene. Mm -hmm. And those are the kind of stories that interest me because they suggest that there's a lot more going on in an animal's head than we can prove. You talk a lot about all these stories in the book. I'm, I'm curious, what do you what do you really think about animal intelligence and uh, whether they possess intelligence on, on the scale that perhaps humans do, or are they no, have a different kind of intelligence? I think brain is a very expensive piece of equipment, mm-hmm. and usually uh, metabolically it requires a lot of blood, blood and a very high a high protein diet and everything else. Um, and so you don't you know, animals aren't going to have more brains than they've needed than they need or use. And then I also you can say without question that given the nature of evolution that every animal has produced brainier offspring at some point that have had a chance to flourish and survive and you can say that most of these experiments haven't taken in other words the cost benefit uh, equation for intelligence doesn't work for most animals but it worked for us for a variety of reasons that being said there's logic to there being some measure of intelligence and or consciousness in a lot of different animals don griffin is one of the the deans of the study of animal intelligence once said it's just a lot more efficient to equip an animal with some means of decision making than to hardwire it for every inventionality. And I think there's a lot more intelligence out there than we give credit to. We're not going to find animals uh, extending the boundaries of quantum mechanics, but we may share with them some measure of consciousness and some measure of intelligence, the ability to sort of model the world and make decisions about the world. And that might be spread far more widely in the animal kingdom than we credit it, than science can credit just because of its inhibitions about the study of the subject. So that's the point of this, is that, you know, if there's a convergent evolution in physical shape, maybe there's a convergent evolution in behavior as well. You know, orca is so different from us in every respect. It lives underwater. It doesn't have to fight gravity. You know, it diverged from its terrestrial uh, forebears from whatever it is 60 million years ago. And yet, in some respects, we can see orcas thinking in some ways 
similar to the way we think about things? And that's a wonderful and compelling question. Why should that be? Well, they live in a complex social structure. They have to figure out who knows what, who can help them and who can hurt them and who can, who's going to compete to them with them just the way we do. And so maybe there's a convergent evolution of sorts in the realm of consciousness, just as there is in the physical shape of, of, of creatures who do the same thing. And that's the point I'd like to get across, is that, you know, we, we're not alone in the universe. There may be other creatures out there who, maybe they're not as smart as us, but maybe they can think a little like us in some ways. Mm -hmm. Nature may have found the same solution over and over again. Um, exactly. Uh, so it looks like we're running a little bit out of time, but I'm just curious, is there any work currently being done on exploring uh, these issues? or? Uh, well, I mean, it, it's, it's, this is not an issue for science. This window that I'm exploring in what animals actually do it's something that's uh, very frustrating for uh, scientists because none of these stories, they're not controlled. Mm -hmm. You can't prove them. But what they can do is if you see an animal seem to demonstrate awareness of another's mental state or some complex problem-solving ability, it can point you in directions where you might be able to study it more rigorously. I think that we're not going to be seeing much progress on the study of animal intelligence and its relation to human intelligence until we find a way, until scientists and uh, those who are in the field find a way to deal with this question that requires you to sort of eliminate all leakage and all possible alternative explanations before accepting any evidence of animal intelligence because that path has proven incredibly frustrating and it's gotten us nowhere. Another issue, of course, is that there's no real agreement on what human intelligence is, whether it's even one ability or many abilities. So it's kind of hard to do the comparative work when you have a moving target for the thing that you're comparing it with. And so there's a lot of issues. I, I think it's kind of striking that uh, probably the single most important human behavior is intelligence. People have been thinking about it for thousands of years and writing about it for thousands of years and speculating on it for thousands of years. And despite its primacy as a topic of uh, investigation, we don't know that much about it. We know more about the structure of our genes than we know about animal intelligence. And maybe it's because it's so important to us that it gets cloaked in ideology and all sorts of encrusted with myth, and so it's hard to sort of address as an objective thing. But it, it has proved a very frustrating thing to, to investigate. But on the other hand, we can't wait forever. I mean, it's important to understand our role in the natural order. Important for us, it's probably important for the natural order as well. So I, I, I just throw these uh, idea out there that there's another way of trying to at least appreciate animal intelligence, even if we can't prove anything about it. I, I would certainly agree. Uh, well, Mr. Linden, I just want to thank you very much for a very fascinating discussion and for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. Great pleasure. Thank you. You were just listening to author Eugene Linden discussing animal intelligence as portrayed in his new book, The Octopus and the Orangutan, New Tales of Animal Intrigue, Intelligence, and Ingenuity. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, coming up next, you can find out how you can protect your PC against a very virulent worm, so stay tuned. Well, it seems these days there seems to be a virus going around the internet. Uh, well, joining us today is our tech correspondent, Jimmy Lin, to tell us a little bit more about that. Jimmy, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Frank. So tell us about this worm that's going around. 
Yeah, so this worm that's going around and sometimes crashing computers that's running Windows is exploiting a flaw in Windows that Microsoft issued a patch for last month around the middle of July. But as you can see, not that many computers have been patched. I mean, quite a few have, but quite a few have not. And those computers that have not been patched have been affected by this worm. So uh, let me describe a little bit what the flaw is. And in Windows, there's a couple of uh, standards, VCOM and RPC. And what these pieces of software do is allows Windows programs to talk to other Windows programs that are on different computers. So it allows programs to communicate over the network to other programs. Okay, so that protocol. Yeah, and so the problem is, is that there's a buffer overflow error in this software. And so what that means is that when a program has a buffer overflow error, a program will ask another program or the user for some data. And that program may only expect the data that's incoming to be about you know, 100 characters long. And so a malicious program might try to stuff a lot more than 100 characters into that buffer. And a lot of programs don't check to see how much data is stored into that buffer. And it allows the data to overrun or overflow the buffer. And so what that allows is arbitrary data to be stored into memory. And so if you do it correctly, you can essentially, through a buffer overflow, run arbitrary program on another machine. And so what this worm, which is called MS Blast, does is first it randomly selects a computer by generating an IP address. Uh -huh. And it tries to see if this particular computer is vulnerable by attacking various oh, network ports by trying to essentially send it data and trying to make a buffer overflow happen. And if it's successful in doing that, then what it does is it installs an FTP server on your computer and the FTP server then will download the worm on to the infected computer. Wow, that's malicious. Yeah, and then from there, it will try to infect another computer. And that's why it's called a worm, because what a worm is is a program that it self-replicates and installs itself on another computer, which then tries to install itself on another computer and so on. So what are the symptoms if your computer gets infected? Well, it's interesting. If the worm works properly as the worm writer intended, then the only thing you'll probably notice is that it might be slower your network access might be slower. Now, it's possible that, say, if you're running it on a network, especially like on a campus network, some system administrators might complain that your computer is the source of a lot of network traffic. Okay. And that actually happened to us with one of the computers in the computer science department. I see. So we got emails saying, your computer seems to be sending out a lot of traffic, and we found that it had been compromised. Oh. Now, sometimes the worm does not work as the writer intended, in which case it actually reboots your computer. So if the worm doesn't work properly, it's actually more annoying to you because without warning, your computer will start rebooting. It'll oh. give you a little notice that says your computer will reboot in 30 seconds and there's basically nothing you can do about it and then it reboots. So it does this continuously until you get rid of the worm. That's right. It's interesting in that when the computer reboots all the time, it prevents the worm from spreading as quickly, but it makes your life a lot more annoying. Now. For those uh, listeners who haven't patched their system, they should go to windowsupdate.microsoft.com and immediately install all of the critical updates 
that Microsoft lists for their particular computer. And they should do it soon because this MS Blast worm, what it's going to do on Saturday, August 16th, is it's going to start launching a denial of service attack on windowsupdate.microsoft.com. And what that means is that all of these MS Blast worms all over the place are going to start flooding that computer with bogus network traffic and hoping to take it down. Uh -huh. So if you don't get the patch by this Saturday, the server may not be up for you to get the patch in the first place. And if your machine is already infected, you might be able to use certain antivirus software like Norton Antivirus or uh, McAfee, and that should be able to clean it out. For those who are technically savvy, there is a way to clean it up manually and the easiest way to find that web page that describes that procedure is go to news.google.com and search for clean MS Blast. So there's no uh, need to reinstall the operating system, right? There shouldn't need to be a need to reinstall the entire operating system. If you go through these procedures, it should be able to clear out the MS Blast program, and then you should be fine, and then you need to patch your system. Because if you don't patch your system, it's vulnerable to be attacked again. Notice that the user doesn't have to open it any email or anything like that. A computer is vulnerable if it has not been patched and it's sitting on the network. That alone makes it susceptible to be infected. Okay, Jimmy. Well, thanks a lot for your advice. Okay, thank you. And I hope everyone out there gets the message in time. I hope so, too. Okay, and now here's a Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. Uh, originally, the Coke had the cocaine for its uh, enhancing effects, but these days, it is the caffeine that gives it the buzz. Uh, caffeine acts on the adrenaline receptor in the brain, causing your whole body to become more active, and that is what causes the buzz in uh, cola. Yeah, and now here's Herr Dr. Professor Einstein with this week's question of the week. Ah, it's vibrations. But how can we transfer vibrations into electrical current? Ah, this is a big question. Well, if you know the answer, just think you know the answer. Email us here at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but hey, you just might get a little more rumble in your life. All right, and that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Lee. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon, and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel.